Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall on Coming Up for Air here with Dominique Simone Levine. Hi, Dominique. How are you? I'm fine. Good morning, everyone. And the lovely Kaylee, Kayla Solomon. How are you, Kayla? Good, Laurie. Thanks. <laughs> Kaylee, I don't know where that came from. All right, the lovely is what threw me. (laughs) (laughs) The lovely. Okay, so we have a topic for today. Dominique, why don't you get us started? We talked last week about being in an intimate relationship and using craft on your partner who has a substance use disorder. And we made a good start on understanding sort of your expectations and your rights in a relationship and began talking about getting your own needs met, what that might look like. And I thought we'd break down today a few things that might help you in building the kind of requests for your own needs. Just an example of how to make a request that gets you to yes, which we do in, in craft. We teach families how to communicate in a way that is not intimidating and respectful and provides the best opportunity to be heard, right? So I'm wondering if we can apply that to making a request to have my needs met in a relationship. And I I would even go further back and go, what are my needs? I'm so overwhelmed and confused and exhausted and stuck and upset and scared. Where to start? And I thought of three places I would start, which is maybe letting me know if you're going to stay out all night somehow there's one there's um i need a place that can be calm what would that look like so what sorts of things would i even begin to ask for that are possible given my loved one's active addiction well we have an app that i would highly encourage everybody to try to negotiate it's called life 360 but there's other apps like this and it's a tracking device on your phone And I think having a tracker on somebody's phone is life-changing because instead of you having to sit up saying, I have to call every hospital on the planet, all you need to do is if that person's phone is turned on, you know exactly where they are. So I think, I know that this this sounds unreasonable for adults to do, but, but I do think that there's something about that that's very, very useful. I don't think that that sounds unreasonable, especially when you're in a love relationship like that, you know, husband and wife, partners. I think that, to be honest with you, I think that's very much what you do in an adult relationship. I always know where my husband is. I've known for how many years and very rarely do I not know where he is. And I'm just thinking about this. And if he disappeared and I didn't know, I would be troubled. Mm -hmm. So I think in a relationship, you have the right to ask, I need to know where you are so that I don't worry. I think that's a, that's a great start. So how would, how would you do this? Would you, would you also offer to be tracked? Is that, is that helpful in making this request? 
I'm wondering if we can, you know, you've been making a lot of strides and I really appreciate the effort you've been making not to drink. And I see, you know, you're not always able to not drink, but I really appreciate the times you, you are not drinking. And, but when you do drink, you forget to call, you forget to come home and, and I am in terror for those hours. So I'm going to suggest something that maybe sounds a little funny, but I think it would be so helpful and reduce my worry if you'd allow your phone and my phone, we would just track each other so we would know where we are. So if if you don't call or you don't come home, at least I know where you are and I can get some sleep. What do you think about that? And I would add my my version of that, which would be I know it's terribly annoying for you to have to call me and tell me where you are. And I know I'm annoying when I'm like, where'd you go? Where are you going? Tell me where you're going. Call me, whatever. I think that's terribly annoying for both of us. And I think what would make it less stressful and less obnoxious is that if we both put this tracking on our phones, so we both know where we are. I know you're home. I know you're, if anything happens, I can find you. As long as I could see where you are, I don't, you don't have to call me then I know where you are. And that's really what I'm concerned about is where are you? But if I know where you are, you don't have to call ever. So I think that this is a way to take that kind of stress off where you have to keep checking in with me, which I don't feel good about. I really would much rather know that if I need to, I could find you. If there's an emergency at the house, if anything's going on that you need to know about, this way I know that you're close by and I could call you. The other thing about that is it's taking it away again from the drinking yes, to the relationship. I know I'm the one that's annoying. I'm always calling you and trying to figure out where you are and I want to call and it's hard and it takes it away from it's because of your drinking and it's more because of the relationship. Because it matters to me where you are. Exactly. Exactly. How about the one where, you know, I'm, uh, I'm worried about you drinking and driving. So is there something we can do that prevents you? A breathalyzer? I'm all about the devices, apparently, because <laughs> if you put a breathalyzer on your car, you can't drink and drive. And then you, it will not start without you breathing into it. And then if you breathe into it and you breathe past a certain alcohol li- limit, then it's not going to start. So it takes the decision making out of it. Just a thought. I'm open. Yeah, there's lots of ways to get around breathalyzers. And I happen to know this because um, we did have someone living with us who was really struggling awfully with alcohol and did have a breathalyzer, like a court ordered breathalyzer in her car. And she was easily able to get around it. And then after a certain point, she just went into without telling anybody, she went in somewhere. I, I don't like some garage somewhere and said, take it out. And for $75, she got it taken out. Nobody knew for the longest time. And she was out there driving around. And there's lots of ways of getting around it. Like if you're out, hey, you haven't been drinking. Could you go ahead and blow in the breathalyzer so that I can drive the car? And, you know, I'll give you a ride home. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways. The least of which is the person complaining that it doesn't work right. And you have to blow really hard or just right. And it's definitely something to look at. It's something you may end up with, whether you like it or not, if it ends up court ordered. I'm wondering about other ways to prevent drinking and driving or use and, and uh, drug use and, and driving. How about the, the non-affected loved one says, uh, well, you know, no questions asked. If you need a ride and you feel like you can't drive, you know, all bets are off. I'm coming to get you or I'm sending an Uber. You just have to let me know in a text. 
you know, maybe we have a code word, or I feel as though the first step for this couple is to take away the most dangerous behaviors that are being reflected in that relationship. And so right now we're just talking about the partner driving. And then there's also the potential risk to the safety of you, the family member, and the kids, which if you go even further, you know, grandkids. And so it gets very confusing where your allegiances lie in these situations where you're trying to protect yourself, you're trying to protect the children, you're trying to protect the safety of your of your loved one with addiction, with SUD, and your relationship at home. So getting a few little requests through that help you connect and partner with your loved one who's using and say, you know, I am, I'm not judging. I'm, I'm not saying anything other than if you're in danger, we need to move. And so all you have to do is text me. If you're in danger. So let me ask you this, Dominique, because I can, I have a feeling I know what a family member would say to you, they might say, but when my loved one has been drinking, their thought process changes. And that does happen. I mean, even with someone who isn't struggling with substance use disorder, you go out, you have a couple of drinks, and then you get a little bit bolder and you're like, oh, I can drive. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. To the point where some people will refuse to give you keys. And I have a feeling that a family member might ask that question. How would you recommend answering that? Like, what would you recommend to that family member? What could they do with craft? Uh, my first thought is figure out, have somebody show you how to unplug the alternator. There you go. I mean, literally get under the hood and, and unplug, unplug the power source. So, I mean, I had a situation where the father found the adult son's truck at the local saloon and he had the second set of keys. So he drove the truck home and he parked it a couple streets away from the house. And the son ended up getting a lift home, getting a lift home and being furious about the truck being missing. It's stolen. I got to call the police. And then dad kept trying to quiet him down and say, you know, we'll deal with it in the morning. Let's get some sleep. And he said, no, my truck's missing. And so he called the police himself on his missing truck. His father kind of saw the policeman and said, hey, by the way, it's just two, it's just two streets away. He's been drinking. And he ended up getting himself arrested because he was so obnoxious with the police. And it's the way the night went, but nobody got harmed. And the son was made to be embarrassing, ended up the night in jail, the whole thing on the front lawn. The family allowed it to be embarrassing so that the son would feel being arrested. I mean, there's a lot of good craft in that right there. What happens when you're not controlling, but you, you see the importance here of potentially putting him in a safe cell for the night. <laughs> I think that's an important piece of craft that often gets overlooked or family members can really get lost in what's going on in the crisis and not remember that a, a really important piece of craft is safety. And it is most important that if your loved one is going to get behind the wheel of a car and drive when they've been using, whether it's alcohol, whatever substance it is, that you go to great lengths to stop that from happening because it is incredibly unsafe for a lot of people when that happens. So doing what you have to to keep everybody safe is really important. And then I love your example, Dominique, of and then the family allowing for these embarrassing things to happen, which are natural consequences. If you're going to call the cops and you're going to make a big scene and, you know, you're going to get out of control, then 
these might be the things that happen and you're just allowing for natural consequences and you're allowing the person to kind of feel. And this is the other thing is they're not responsible or they're never held accountable for their behavior, but that's what that is. That's what allowing natural consequences is, is they are being held accountable for their behavior. They're not responding well to it, but they are being held accountable. Their response is none of your business. You know, because I, I feel like the, the irony of this is the cops wouldn't have been involved if the son hadn't called them. The father did not call the police. The son did. And then instead of him just reporting calmly that his truck was stolen, he was drunk. So he was obnoxious. And I think it's fabulous that he got to be obnoxious with the police who get to lock him up and he's not obnoxious at home. Free reign terrorist at home. And the, the dad tried to calm him down. If he had calmed down, like dad was asking him, he wouldn't have gotten arrested, right? He wouldn't, it wouldn't have been such a big deal. But also recognizing that that whole scene can be incredibly difficult for some people, can be incredibly difficult and painful and embarrassing, like if the neighbors are seeing it. And I know we say, oh, you shouldn't be embarrassed. But when it comes time for something like that to happen, it it, it can be incredibly painful to sit through even that. But if you can do it, the results on the other side are actually can be positive. It's just a, you're going through a very difficult time. It's just painful in the moment and maybe for a short while afterwards. But the result of your loved one experiencing their own embarrassment, experiencing the pain of whatever it is that they're going through is going to be possibly the catalyst to them slowly changing their behavior. Not necessarily ground moving changes, but little baby steps. And it's letting them be responsible for their own stuff. And you'd never know what's going to be the trigger for change. You don't know whether it's a little baby step or it's, you often hear families go, but then they broke up and he's been so upset. You know, there's, it doesn't have to be a huge event. It can be the shame or the embarrassment of a sibling not staying through dinner and leaving a very much loved sibling, you know, because you're, you're drinking and you're out of control a little bit. You don't know which one of these little things is gonna make the difference, is gonna matter. People will consider stopping use for the smallest things. I mean, we know the big things and they exist and they're all over the landscape usually, but a little bit of embarrassment, a little bit of, uh, you know, I just didn't like the way I came off or you don't know. It's like, I've got to stop doing this because I don't like myself when I'm like this. It doesn't have to be huge. But as the family, the partner or the parent, you want to create as many of them as you can that are out there, letting them have the consequence of their behavior, letting them not get what they want because of the way they're acting. There's many ways to, to sort of litter the landscape, if you will, with moments that might show them there's a better way. Yeah, and I think of it as planting. So you're planting seeds. And what happens is that you put these seeds in the ground and then the environment, the situation, time actually waters the seeds, but not every seed comes up. You know, you just don't know what what the moment is going to be. But I also feel like by planting seeds and allowing these opportunities to happen, you feel like you're doing something. And I feel like 
if you're looking at the outcome, that's not the point of this. The point is you're in a process. And if you could acknowledge the process that you are changing the dynamic, you're allowing for natural consequences, which doesn't mean, oh, because he got arrested, he's going to get sober now. No, that's not how this works. Getting arrested is one more straw that could possibly break the camel's back, but you don't know what it's going to break. It's like one of those games where you just keep adding it or like um, the, the thing where you're taking the blocks out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember because those are details that I do not retain. But if you just keep feeling like you are moving forward in this process, okay, they might not be visually or visibly moving forward. But if you are, you're already changing the dynamic. And if you're not holding things in the same way that you've always held them, then you're already disrupting the process. So I think the first need and want is the desire for change. Okay, that's a need. If I'm in a dysfunctional situation, my first desire, my first need is I want things to change. So guess what? You get to do that, but you have to start with yourself. And how am I going to do things differently? How am I going to tolerate discomfort? Because if I start changing things up, it is going to create a tremendous amount of discomfort and possibly agitation on both of your parts. One, because you're in the process of doing something different, which means that you're on the learning curve angle of things, which is uncomfortable for all of us. We all like doing what we've always done, even if it doesn't work, because it's familiar. We know how to do it. It's habitual. And anytime we make a decision to change, we're already uncomfortable. So a huge focus needs to be on managing the discomfort. That's a really, really big part of this process is, okay, I'm changing. I'm going to do things differently. How do I hold on to my vision of what I'm doing differently, not what how they're responding, but what I'm doing differently? I love, it just resonated with me. I love um, how you put it when you said, if you stop looking to the outcome, because I think that's, that is one of the most difficult things to do is to let go of the outcome that you're looking for, because we're looking for the outcome, but it's not only just the outcome, we're looking for the outcome to be a particular way, which is exactly what you're talking about, which is the one thing we don't have any control over is the outcome. We have no idea how the other person is going to respond. That just resonated with me, but also the, the game is Jenga. Jenga, that's it. It's Jenga. And the thing about Jenga is it's this stack of little um, wooden bars, basically, that are stacked up. And the job is that you're taking one piece out at a time and you're trying not to topple the whole thing. I think it's a perfect analogy here. So you're making changes by pulling out. You don't want to topple your whole life and the whole relationship. That's not the goal here. You're pulling it out and seeing when you pull it out, what changes? If I'm gonna stop doing this, if I'm gonna start doing this, what do I notice that changes? And I think the observation part of it is essential and you need to be, as I like to say, the detective. So you're noticing subtle changes in dynamics. You're noticing what happens if you do this a different way. It's kind of like we talk about the communication and the listening and validation, which please go back and listen to if you haven't. It's huge, a huge part of this. If you start doing that differently, then people respond differently. You know, like one of the women in our group was saying that that she's starting to validate her grandkids 
which by the way, she didn't do with her kids. And so she's noticing how her kids speak to her grandkids. So if they fall, they're like, stop crying, get over it. You're fine, which is what most of us did. And what she says to them now, which is the validation piece is, oh, that must have hurt. Or, you know, wow, you fell. Are you, are you okay? Talk to me. You know, that must be difficult for you. And what happens is, what does she notice? What we've been talking about. As soon as those little ones get validation, they stop crying. They stop crying. Yeah. They stop crying. And, and so again, all of the things that we're doing, you're not just doing with the person that's using substances. You're practicing this everywhere in your life. So it becomes more innate to you. It becomes more automatic. It becomes more familiar. It becomes more habituated because we wait until we're in crisis. And then we're like, oh, I have to actively listen to someone who's screaming at me. That's not the point. <laughs> right. The point is that you're doing these things when your system is calm so that then it becomes familiar. I'm, I'm a really good example. Like I could do an amazing listening and mirroring and repeating back what somebody's saying. I could have somebody speak for 20 minutes and repeat back verbatim what they said. But if somebody's screaming at me, I first have to calm my nervous system down to be able to do that. But I practiced it enough that I could actually do that. And only because I did it over and over and over again, when I was calm, then I could do it. So all of this, it's like you're trying to think when you're calm so that you have choices when you're not. And when we talk about stepping back, what we mean is you're stepping back so you could assess the situation and not just react immediately. So you're like, okay, wait a second. I learned this tool. What tool was it? And you're checking out your toolbox and then you get to respond differently because you've actually taken that breath so that you're not just going blah, 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 blah. And then you have to apologize for what you said, or you're back in an old dynamic because the new dynamic is to not immediately react. So if you do nothing else, if you take time before saying something, you're already doing something different. I'm reminded of the, the single most visited member on the site. I think she said, was it 464 visits the last time? I looked at some of our top members' uh, visits, number of visits on the site. We used her testimonial recently and she said, you know, I, I first learned to be calm and to, and to reduce the worry. And then my husband stopped drinking. And now, <laughs> and now we have six months sober. And it, it, it's just what you're saying, both of you, that this has to precede perhaps the bigger picture of addiction, that this just these little changes, subtle ways of creating that space, creating that protective bubble, if you will, for yourself that allows you hopefully to start to calm down a little bit, to not react when you get yelled at again, you know? So it's a good earnest journey and it takes care of you regardless of what happens to your loved one or any, anything else in the environment. I just had an interaction with someone whose husband was in treatment. She's been practicing her communication skills for those phone calls that they're having. And she talked about how this phone call went awry and she knew, oh my God, I'm not using my skills. And it was like, no, pull it back. Like, what am I doing? What am I doing? And she said she quickly got off that phone call and it was troubling. What was troubling her was her own response. And so she took the time 
uh, one, I think her response was phenomenal because she got off the phone call. She was like, okay, I'm not doing well. I need to get off the phone call. So she took that much needed break. But then the action steps that she took afterwards was, I think, craft. It, It was phenomenal. And it's a great way to practice it. She wrote down some a few stock phrases and prepared herself. She practiced in the mirror and she prepared herself for that next conversation that she was going to have with her husband. And she had her second phone call with him. She had her stock phrases in hand and she went with it. And she was just so elated because it worked out. It worked out perfectly. She was so excited that it worked. But this is an example of just the steps that you can take and practicing. How do you make it second nature? How do you know when you should be pulling back? And it's anytime you're starting to feel really uncomfortable in the conversation, you're probably needing some time to calm down. So just notice that. Take a step back and writing it out, do it. And practicing. And practice it in the mirror. Practice it in the mirror. Practice it with your kids. Practice it with your employees. I used it with employees. I've used a lot of my communication skills with employees and they work well. Well, and and what I would add is just real quick, really quickly, the this is the model of change. Okay. The model of change is that it starts with the desire to want something to be different. And you're making a commitment to change. And then the next step is to be able to look at something that's going on after the fact and say that did not go well and notice that. And in this case, what she did is that did not go well. You're making the assessment of what didn't go well and what would be better. And the next part of the phase is that you catch yourself in the middle of it. So that's that's the progress is, oh, I'm in the middle of this. Let me either go to those tools that I need or stop this situation and back up. The ultimate goal, which is the really hard one, and it's really hard to get to, is to actually notice the trigger before things are happening. So it's kind of like the phone is ringing. And so you start to get into your mode at that moment, as opposed to go into your old way. It's like, okay, what do I do? What do I do? Or you let the person talk and you're not even listening to them because what you're doing is you're prepping yourself to calm yourself down so that you could actually not get hung up. And then you could start to listen to them and use the tools. I'm going to actively mirror. I'm going to be open. I'm going to calm myself down, whatever the tool is. And what I love about craft is we have a massive list of tools to use. So get familiar with the tools, play with them, practice them, look at your needs, look at your wants. And then what what you want to do is focus on you. And in the case of partners, love, married people, whatever, you want to be able to look at your part in it and focus on the relationship and the relationship expectations versus the confronting the person on the addiction um, or the substance, because it's not the substance, it's their behavior due to the substance. So focus on the behavior that happens when they're using, not they're using. Okay, focus on what is not happening because they're using, because it takes the edge off of you have to stop. That's not the point of this. The point of this, how you're acting, what you're doing is really painful and difficult. And so I would appreciate it if you would do this instead, you know, or if we could talk about things differently. It takes the pressure off of the substance. 
Because it really, honestly, the substance is not the point. If the person was responsible and caring and present and functioning with the substance, we wouldn't be having this discussion. It's their behavior, the problems that are happening because of the substance that is making it a problem in the first place. So address the problem, not the substance. Because it also isn't as personal because then it gives them something else to look at as opposed to you're asking me to stop and you're asking me to not use my crutch or whatever their relationship is with the substance. That's not what you're addressing. You're addressing their behavior, which is much more manageable for everybody involved. Well, I have to tell you, ladies, I think with that, that's a great summary of everything that we just discussed. I think once again, we had another great topic And I really like that we took the time out to kind of address partnership relationships and not always the parent and adult child or that parent relationship, but just focusing in on partners, spouses. Thank you for us kind of getting into into this specific topic. I guess we will see everybody again next week, and I'm sure we're going to come up with another wonderful conversation. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.